This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow. And I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five-conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Many people these days like to talk about interdisciplinarity. University administrators, in particular, are well known to regularly engage in high-flown panegyrics about the need to transcend the limits of traditional academic boundaries in order to open up our minds to transformative transdisciplinary insights by linking together concepts that have been woefully sealed off in separate silos. The principal problem with all of that is not so much that it's wrong. Clearly, all great discoveries established new connections between things that people hadn't imagined before. But that just triumphantly pointing out that is hardly a recipe for actually making any sort of real progress. Personally, I've long believed that the best way to increase the chances of developing important new insights is to simply start off with a collection of the most passionately curious and original thinkers you can find. Someone like Charles Foster, say, who has somehow managed to become a world traveler, bioethicist, veterinary surgeon, barrister and member of the University of Oxford's law faculty, and one of the most prolific and thought-provoking writers you could possibly imagine. Come to think of it, there's actually nobody quite like Charles, which makes him very much worth listening to indeed. As I was alluding to an interesting story with your case that I'd like to relate to you and then eventually come to a question. I sometimes have difficulties in coming to a question, but I'll try. So I'm thinking about the next season's filming, and I think we should really beef up our law section, and I should talk to some people who are expert in law. I've talked to a few, but for all sorts of reasons, commercial reasons, uh, balance reasons, and so forth, talk to more lawyers. So I do go on my merry way, and I look for people at various different law faculties, and who's written what, and who seems to be reasonably interesting, and look at very short introduction series, and what some different topics are, and reputable authoritative figures. Um, And I come on your name with medical law, and I think medical law. I don't know anything about medical law, but perhaps that's interesting. Um, Start looking at this, I think, oh yeah, there are quite a few really interesting things. This guy writes well. Go to your website, find out a little bit more about you. Yes, you're, you're a big shot, you're at Oxford, nice authority, you're a practicing barrister, you've done various things, so you understand aspects of theory and practice, you clearly understand the domain. And then I start seeing these other things that intrigue me. This guy's also written a book on the Ark of the Covenant, this guy writes about traveling on camels and so forth. Okay, he's a particularly broad-minded lawyer, 
that's somewhat unique in and of itself. Um, clearly prolific, um, clearly likes to do other things. Okay, um, he'll make for an interesting interlocutor. I'll contact him. You were gracious enough to agree. And then I started reading a little bit more in preparation, thinking more. So I read Being a Beast, your latest book. Um, I'm reading Wired for God, and I'm thinking, first of all, I'm thinking, this guy's like Superman. He's, he's doing everything all over the place. He's got a book on neuroscientific aspects of religious experience. He has a book on what it's like to be a beast, what it's like to be this, what it's like to be that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just captivated by, by, by how somebody could be doing all these different things. Veterinary surgeon, practicing barrister, writing about every, every possible topic under the sun. Um, so you're actually really starting to intrigue me. And then um, recently I go to uh, the British Library and I look up another one of your law books, uh, this, this book on dignity. And... And then I think it all starts to make sense to me. So here's my big thesis. I told you it was going to take me a while to come to a question. So I'm coming <laughs> to a question. So then I, it's the pieces of the puzzle start coming together. And I think, first of all, this guy's actually writing about the same sort of thing in all sorts of different ways. What he really is, this guy's an Aristotelian. This guy is a flesh and blood Aristotelian. And by that, I don't mean Aristotelian scholar of of uh, which there are many, or even somebody who just has a broad-based um, love and appreciation of the natural world, like Aristotle did. But this is somebody who could be a living incarnation of Aristotle. You take this idea of, of flourishing and uh, what it's like to actually uh, be as an entity, first of all as a human, but also I think you go even further than that, um, very, very seriously. So I have two questions. Here I am. So my first question is, is that right? Would you call yourself uh, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool of Aristotelian? And second of all, if that's right, when did that start for you? When did you become such a, such a thing? The questions are very flattering. Um, of course, I'm no Aristotle but I share his concerns. Um, I'm passionately interested in human thriving, and I think the main reason that I'm interested in human thriving is that um, I wonder whether or not I am thriving as much as I can myself. Um, and the way that I friend that answer tells you what a very insecure person I am. So the, the world seems to me to be a, a massively fascinating place and a massively complicated place, and all those fascinations and all those complexities um, need to be assimilated somehow into uh, our own view of ourselves in order for us to live as comfortably and as flourishingly in the world as we can. Um, if we neglect to pay proper attention to any one of those little things, uh, we're potentially not sucking as much out of the marrow of life as we might. Uh, we're potentially missing some key which we need in order to unlock a mystery. Um, so I'm concerned that our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with um, the wider natural world, um, it goes off half cock um, because we have 
overlooked something which we need to know in order properly to contextualize those relationships. So in the context of being a beast, we have at least five senses. Uh, Aquinas said that we have 10, and I think he's probably right. But even if we have five, we usually use um, only one of those senses, uh, vision. Um, which means that when we look out on a woodland, um, we are only getting, at the very most, 20% of the data that we need in order properly to interpret that woodland. Um, if we go into any other department of human life, other than big understanding, um, we would think that there was something worrying about basing our judgments on only 20%. In fact, it's worse than that, because vision and cognition are intimately related for various reasons, which we might go on to discuss. Um, and so our visual images of things um, become transmuted immediately into our thoughts about those things. And so our view of the world becomes almost immediately self-referential, narcissistic. So when I go into a wood, um, I don't see a tree except for a fraction of a second. Um, when I start describing that tree to myself, what I'm describing is Charles Foster's thoughts about the tree. Um, and that's disastrous for, for a number of reasons. Um, if I want to know what that tree is like, um, I need to do better than that. If I need to relate to that tree, which presupposes that I know something accurately about it, I need to do better than that. So it seems to me that we are in um, an epistemological crisis and, and that lots of our neuroses uh, boil down to uh, the fact that we don't know enough about this world which we mooch through. Um, and, and therefore, we can't expect to feel at home in it. We can't expect to have our ethical attitudes towards the world calibrated remotely right. So we need to know more about everything in order uh, to, to know where we are in relation to everything else. And therefore, what should determine um, the, the ethics of our relationship to everything. So that's interesting. And that's the last bit, I think, is quite different than what somebody else might have imagined. So the first bit about processing the difference between cognition and understanding and whether our reflections are, uh, how much our reflections have to do with uh, aspects of, physical aspects of neural processing and how much they have to do with whatever it is we call memory and connectedness and consciousness and all the rest of that. Those are questions that are important and meaningful but one could imagine having them with a neuroscientist in a strictly neuroscientific sure. discussion. What I guess I was captivated by um, and what I was trying to, albeit clumsily, allude to in my opening statements was the way that you tie that with the ethical context as well, with the idea of flourishing, with the idea of thriving, with the idea of being to, to sound incredibly hackneyed, the, the most that one can be, or the best that one can be, and so forth. Um, and that's what I meant by a living, breathing Aristotelian, that you, you have that prism, that filter, that it seems to me that you look at throughout your work, throughout all of these different aspects of your work. Um, 
and, and I, I hope to go there in, in some detail, because to me, I found that um, fascinating. I'm a sucker for consistency. So you see, one of the things that was driving me crazy was I thought, well, this person's obviously very learned, and he's obviously uh, very thoughtful, um, and he's writing about all these different things. And I couldn't somehow manage to bring them together. But for me, they were all about this notion of thriving and flourishing and providing the right ethical context to our lives. Um, not only our lives insofar as how we reflect and treat each other and so forth, big enough topic though that is, but also how we react with other life forms, how we react with the environment, how we react with the world around us. So I thought, okay, I, I get it now. <laughs> At least I thought I did. Um, I have some sense as to as to the threads that are pulling you together. So there are these phrases as, well, we want to discover what it's like to be human and we want to discover this and that. And I, I understand that that's a motivating factor, but it doesn't really tell me very much if you understand what I'm saying. Um, whereas to me, there's this driving ethical flourishing component behind everything that at least that I haven't had the opportunity to read everything you've, you've written because you've written an awful lot. Um, but the things that I have read are all linked in that particular way. And that's, that's when I think the penny dropped for me and I thought, oh, that's, that's really fascinating that he's looking at everything. Even your, your, your legal work on dignity that I hope to get to later on is very much driven in that particular way in a very, what at least it seems to me to be potentially pragmatic way, but yet um, deeply Aristotelian way of looking at the world. Um, so for me, I, I, I thought that was particularly interesting. But anyway, I'm just rambling, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try asking questions again, uh, <clears throat> something I have a tendency not to do as, as much as I should. I mean, perhaps it's worth saying that, um, for me, relationship is absolutely everything. Uh, we can't begin to thrive unless we have good relationships with ourselves, with our human and non-human uh, compatriots. Um, if you try to say who Charles Foster is, you have to do that by defining himself, by defining him in terms of the nexus of relationships um, in which he exists. To take away my relationships, and I'm not just a miserable, wretched, lonely creature, I actually evaporate. <laughs> um, I, I cease to exist. So what is Charles Foster? Answer, he is the nexus of relationships um, in, in which he exists. And in order to understand uh, my relationships, I have to have an idea of, first of all, who I am, um, and secondly, who the other things in that nexus are, um, in, in order, in order to, to say where I am in, in the nexus and where, where they are. So th that's where it all comes from. And since we relate not just to ourselves and not just to humans, but also to everything else, that imposes a pretty crushing burden of inquiry on, on anyone um, who wants to feel at home in the world, who wants to do the right thing in the world. That, that was the quest which um, drew Aristotle to be a passionate natural historian. And I, I guess that's also why my butterfly mind has fluttered happily over the flowers over which it has. I'd like to go back in time, um, because there are some aspects of what you've relayed through your writings that I found intriguing, if not confusing, in terms of your own personal evolution, be it intimately linked to relationships and so forth, but just in terms of your own thoughts. Um, 
You're obviously somebody who has long cared very deeply about the natural world, about your environment. Um, you mention this fixation with, I think it's blackbirds and uh, uh, being a beast and trying to get into the mind of a blackbird and never quite doing so, but, but being very resolute in your efforts to do so for a prolonged period of time. At the same time, you've also uh, mentioned quite contritely your experience with hunting and your, uh, your previous life as somebody who was um, slaying various <laughs> numbers of, of deer and all the rest of this in a, in, a, in a past life. So I'm guessing that there's a story there in terms of how you eventually came to a conclusion that this was not something that you should be doing or, uh, or some aspect of your evolution. So maybe you can talk a little yeah. bit about that. So it's probably worth saying what I think I was trying to do. Sure. Um, so I grew up in an outer suburb of Sheffield in the north of England. We had a privet hedge around our garden and in one of those privet hedges there lived a blackbird and that blackbird looked at me with its yellow eye with the black pupil and I looked at the blackbird and what I saw in its beautiful eye enraged and tantalized me because it plainly knew something about that little suburban garden that I didn't know. I thought I knew it pretty well. Um, and I wondered what it was and how I could find out what it was. Um, I tried everything I could to try to get inside the head of that blackbird. So the obvious things, I mapped the flight paths of all the blackbirds across the garden. I went round each day looking at the various blackbird nests. I tried some things which people think uh, strange or perverted, but which would have been regarded as simply trite in any shamanic culture anywhere in the world. So I scraped a blackbird off the road and stuffed it and mounted it on um, a piece of string so it circled as a uh, a natural mobile above my bed as I went to sleep. And when I went to sleep, I held a formalized blackbird brain in my hand, hoping that some of the wisdom of uh, this creature would uh, sink into me as I slept and that I'd be able to understand better what it was about. And of course, I got nowhere. But I have been tantalized ever since um, by the question, uh, what did that know of the world and as I have grown older I have become tantalized uh, by the question what do any of us know about the contents of the heads of, of anything so you're looking at me now um, I presume that you are seeing what I see of myself namely a an overweight bald uh, middle-aged man wearing a, a scruffy gray jacket but I have no real way of uh, of being sure that that's what you're seeing. Um, you're about, about just interested for you're you're not bald, uh, and I say this because I have, a, <laughs> I have a stake in the game as well. If anything, you're balding a little. <laughs> you're very kind, but I, I have been worried, as I guess we all are worried at some point, um, whether all my conversations with even those I think I know best are conversations across purposes. Uh, when I talk to my wife over dinner. Um, are, are we really agreeing about, about the basics of the conversation? Um, do I really know anything at all about what makes my children tick? 
So these are the, the basic epistemological questions. Uncertainty about those questions propels people into the insecurities which torment me and into lots of extremely boring uh, philosophical papers. Um, but inside the head of every one of us, there is a universe, the exploration of which seems to me to be hugely more difficult and hugely more fascinating than the exploration of the most distant galaxies. Um, I love the landscapes of England and Scotland and Wales, but um, I was worried that that love was based on inadequate knowledge. Um, I wanted to give my love uh, a secure evidential basis. What a pompous thing to say. Um, but, but, but one way of trying to reassure myself that the, the love was securely based was to try to perceive them uh, more accurately. And that involved um, an inquiry into what the creatures that uh, know those landscapes more intimately um, perceive of them, or, or at least those creatures that are more committed to the landscape, more uh, necessarily immersed in the landscape, perceive of it. So, so that part I get. Um, I don't get the hunting bit right. after that. No. So, 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 so the hunting bit was a perverted form of that same inquiry. So I wanted to get close to these creatures, and I had read that hunters in uh, other cultures needed to have a, a real clairvoyant relationship with these creatures. And it is true that they do. Yeah. Um, and so I killed lots of animals. I'm now deeply ashamed of it. I think that the expression of that legitimate desire was uh, an entirely inappropriate one, um, given the relationships between modern man and animals which now pertain. That said, um, I, I think that the intimacy between uh, a man and a deer, when that man looks at the deer through the telescopic sights of a rifle, is a more intimate one than the relationship between that man and the same deer when the man is looking at the deer through binoculars. And I speculate in the book about why that might be the case. Uh, it, it may be the case that um, I feel closer to the deer that I'm about to kill because we genuinely share one thing, that deer and Charles Foster, answer, we're both going to die. Um, there's, there's not the same intensity of connection with something which I'm just looking at. Right. And at what point did you recognize um, that, you, that you would be able to make some levels of connection or pursue the agenda of trying to get into the head of the deer, as it were, um, and yet at the same time um, move beyond hunting and so forth? When did you start thinking, this is this is not a good thing to be doing, I'm going to stop doing this and, and pursue other agendas. There was no epiphanic, epiphanic moment. Okay. Um, so John Fowles, I think, describes how he looks at the body of a wader, is it, that he's shot and um, makes uh, a decision then that this is illegitimate. Um, there was no moment like that for me. I, 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 there was just an increasing discordance between uh, this epistemological inquiry that I was uh, 
uh, undertaking and the the crassness of of, of killing something. Um, I I realised that um, this inquiry should be based on and should generate empathy, and the business of killing something seemed increasingly to be a, a, a an unempathic thing to do. It was it was doing bad stuff to me as well as to the things that I killed. Well, one of the reasons I'm I'm asking you this question is not to to try to make you feel bad and <laughs> I feel bad enough without you <laughs> feel worse or, or 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 to have any deleterious effect on on to have any effect at all in a negative direction. Um, that's not my motivation. My motivation is from a somewhat different angle, and perhaps you can um, appreciate it. So I've never been a hunter, but I have heard and read stories from people who have been hunters who speak of the prey that they are hunting with great respect, yeah. almost reverence, wow. who clearly are very much in love with the landscape and the yeah. environment. Yeah. And I've always been bemused by this, what to me was uh, uh, this discordance between clearly having some reverence, if not, if not love and awe for, for, the, for the wildlife that they were killing and also the, the landscape itself. Um, and relatedly, I had, I, I've also thought, if you look at it from an American context, and perhaps it's the same in this country, I'm just not as familiar with it, but one tends to associate people with gun racks on their, on their vehicles and uh, the, the hunting community at large with these red meat-eating Republicans yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, who are automatically climate change deniers, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And that, that always struck me as a little bit odd because I thought these people, they have a deep and intimate love and relationship with nature. They should be environmentalists at some level, and I'm sure many of them actually are. So this juxtaposition of um, the hunting community and as opposed to those, those big city dwellers that are all environmentally crazy and so forth, it, 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 it always struck me as a little bit uh, askew, logically. So I was trying to not so much put you on the spot, but try to get into the head of what a, what a hunter feels and does and so forth. That, that, that was the motivation to my, mm. uh, my question. I think everything bad is something which is basically good twisted. Uh, and, and I think that's what you see in this macho climate change denying hunting culture. I think that is rotten to the core. Uh, one of the reasons why you don't see amongst those people, in my experience, um, this uh, respect for reverence for the natural world, quite the opposite. You see a swashbuckling contempt for it. Um, it's because hunting's too easy. <laughs> Um, if you're killing something by uh, looking from 500 yards through a telescopic sight and pulling a trigger of a high-powered rifle, you do something dramatically different from what the Bushmen and the Kalahari are doing. Um, you don't have to understand much about the natural world. You certainly don't have to crawl on your belly through it and have the natural world seep into you in order to do it. So. Lots of basic connections with the natural world have been broken by the very mechanics in modern hunting, um, and that enables uh, a, a psychopathic lack of empathy to be the 
most obvious characteristic of modern hunting. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you a very specific question. When I was reading uh, Being a Beast, in, in one of the earlier chapters when you're being a badger, you have your son with you. Was that difficult to convince your wife that your son should be with you? Because I thought that, I, 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 I know very little about you and I know even less about your wife. So I know that you have six children. And so you're, you know, again, a very energetic fellow, obviously, in all sorts of ways. But I just thought, I can't imagine um, my wife saying to me, sure, take your son with you to live like a badger for, for a while. Was that, was that difficult or was she just all for that? It wasn't difficult at all. My, my wife is my wife because um, she's prepared not only to tolerate, but even occasionally to celebrate what might be regarded <laughs> as, as dangerous weirdnesses. But, but also, um, what my son was doing in that Welsh wood was what all children do all the time naturally. Well, come on. When I, when, I, when I grew up, we spent ages uh, living in dens, crawling around. I sometimes think when I look at my own children playing, are humans natural bipeds? Um, they crawl around, they have their palms flat on the ground, they have their noses working, unlike our pathetic redundant noses. Um, so. My son took this all entirely in his stride. You ask him now what he made of it, he'll say, uh, yeah, yeah, it, was, it was great. Um, but it's no different from what he spends the rest of his life doing. Um, it's worth saying too that um, for exactly those reasons, the closeness of the, of the child to the natural world, uh, my children have been my great teachers. Um, they have forgotten so much less than uh, we have forgotten in uh, our understanding of, of the natural world. I have a, a fairly romantic, prelapsarian view of, of childhood. Um, and my epistemology um, is that in order to understand anything, in order to know something, we have platonically to undertake anamnesis, unforgetting. Um, and children can help us to unforget things. Um, so what he was doing in the wood was simply being him and he thought it was intense fun and my wife saw that uh, he would be happy being him and therefore raised no problem. But another thing which, which is related to this is perhaps worth mentioning. Um, when I talk about this book, one of the consistent questions is, oh, didn't he get ill? Um, to which the answer is, of course, of course not. Um, humans' immune systems are designed for woods and marshes. Uh, they're not designed for central heating and um, air conditioning. The question betrays um, a really dangerous assumption about the way that human beings um, should be living. Uh, we are designed for woods. Um, what we were doing in the wood was not an eccentric thing at all. What's eccentric is to walk down a shopping mall or to sit in this beautiful house talking as we, as we are now talking. That is physiologically dangerous.
That is uh, the, the really perverted activity. If you want to be a, a, a normal human being, um, crawl around the wood doing what we were doing. Are, are all of your children of that persuasion? So you, uh, my sense is that you, very much as you've described, um, you have a deep respect for childhood and you, you look at children having uh, forgotten less relative to us. As our, as our teachers to some extent. Are, do all of your children have the same natural sentiments that, uh, is it Tom? That, Tom. That, that, that Tom had, or do some think, uh, I'd rather be in a shopping mall and dad's really weird, or anything like that? Well, our currently seven-year-old girl is perhaps reacting against woods and worms. <laughs> but I'm sure she'll come back. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this notion of consciousness and connectedness yeah. that you had raised before. And you raise quite provocatively, I think, that you raise at the end of Wired for God. Um, I should say, when I started reading that book about the notion of biomechanics and religious experience, I was thinking almost a William Jamesian type of yeah. book. And okay, there are all sorts of different varieties of religious experience, and how do we look at them within the prism of, of uh, neurophysiology and, and some epistemological philosophical asides or, or digressions or penetrations or however one wants to put it. Yeah which interests a lot of people. It doesn't actually personally interest me all that much because I had a rather skeptical view of, of things. I should say I have a rather skeptical view of things. What interested me the most about that book was the thesis that you brought in at the very end of it, um, where, you, where you talk about consciousness and you talk about this idea that perhaps things are more teleological than we might right. be led to believe. Um, so you, you, mentioned, you mentioned two points. Um, one is, you, on reflecting on consciousness, you say, isn't it interesting that consciousness doesn't seem to be giving us a genetic, uh, sorry, an evolutionary advantage? Yeah. And maybe what's really going on is that there is some teleological purpose to the extent that um, our universe or our world or whatever word you want to describe it, is actually motivated through whatever force to actually produce as much consciousness as is possible. Right. Um, so maybe you can say a little okay. bit more about your thinkings there. Okay. Th thinking there, sorry, thinkings, thinking. thought, your thought there. Okay. <laughs> so, um, up until fairly recently, we've not been very good at looking for consciousness in uh, non-humans. Um, as we get better at looking for it, the more we find it. So the, the universe seems to be a garden which is very fertile for growing consciousness. It seems to have sprouted up wherever uh, we can see it. Why should that be the case? Well, nobody has ever been able to suggest coherently why uh, consciousness itself should confer any selective advantage. Well, you can see why things which sometimes we 
conflate with consciousness confer a selective advantage, for example, theory of mind. There is an obvious advantage in me being able to understand what you're thinking. Um, but, but consciousness, the sense of self, no. Um, all that I can see consciousness is good for um, is relationship. Now, of course, relationship itself, uh, insofar as it generates community, um, uh, has a selective advantage. Um, but, but relationship per se um, is something that is Darwinianly neutral. So the universe seems to be set up in such a way that it uh, facilitates for reasons which confer no selective advantage, the ability of the organisms within it to have communion with one another. I think that's very exciting. And the, the fact that that is the case um, has all sorts of ethical corollaries for me. So I'd like to definitely explore those in more detail. But before I do, two, two quick questions. Um, the first is, the implication of this seems to me to obviously be that there is far more in heaven and earth um, consciousness-wise than is dreamt of in our philosophy right. to the extent that, that vastly more life forms have at least a form of consciousness. Right. Um, the second has to do with um, this notion of the universe. So as somebody who has a physics training, um, I make a, a distinction between um, the universe in terms of just all the stuff that's out there and the stars and the galaxies and the Big Bang and all the rest of that kind of stuff and planetary stuff and Earth yes. and life forms and all that. Do you believe if we were to loosely define this notion of, let's say, a relationship principle, this is again my yeah. physics training, right? <laughs> that, that you say, okay, so, that, so there's a, a fundamental guiding principle of the importance, the primacy of relationships which... Uh, of which one manifestation is is a uh, is a vastly increased level of consciousness throughout Earth than we might have uh, otherwise imagined or appreciated. Um, would you think that would extend really to the universe to the extent that um, uh, that we can talk with any degree of even speculative power about things outside of the Earth, or are you really saying? Earth when you're saying this, or you're just agnostic about all the rest of that stuff? I have no idea about anything that goes on outside the Earth. Yeah. Um, I can see no reason in principle to suppose, though, that the relationship facilitating conditions on Earth wouldn't be replicated anywhere else, but I can give you no reason to suppose that they would be. So let, let's get to this plethora of consciousness. One of the things that's, um, as, as you've noticed a short time ago, we have a dog. Um, and one of the things that I've reflected upon is the complete absurdity of the Cartesian view of animals and dogs in particular as automata, mm -hmm. this notion that they don't have any awareness or kind of thoughts or feelings or yeah, whatever. No dog it, believes that. It's, it's, it's inconceivable. Yeah. All you have to do is just get a dog. Sure. <laughs> You'll understand that. Um, and, but the legacy of this view 
seems to me to, to have been quite widespread and quite pernicious that extended far beyond dogs, that, that many otherwise intelligent people seem to believe that it's virtually impossible to imagine that other life forms other than humans have consciousness. Yeah. And that's been a long-standing legacy in, in the biological sciences right. for, for, well, it's long-standing, so for a long time. But my sense is, and you refer to this explicitly, this is gradually being pared away in terms of contemporary scientific understanding, yeah. that with each passing decade, there's starting to be an appreciation of, of more and more species that have some level of, of self-awareness. Yeah. Would you say that, that that's Absolutely fair? right. Okay. So I guess my question to you, uh, and I do want to get to the ethical aspect because that's very important, but my question to you is, where do you think this would end? Like if uh, clearly dogs have it, so if you were just to, to boldly speculate on the limits of consciousness in terms of life forms, uh, uh, at what level would it, might, might, it, might it end? Would we be able to say, well, this thing is conscious and that thing isn't conscious? Or clearly uh, a, a, an amoeba isn't conscious, or clearly uh, uh, whatever, a oh, blackbird, I guess we'd have, to, <laughs> we'd have to give some level of consciousness to. Do you understand my, my, my I question? I mean, so where, where, would we, where would we draw the line or could we draw the line at any level? It's an empirical question to which I have no satisfactory answer. I mean, I can't see any reason in principle why panpsychism, the, the notion that everything is imbued with a soul of some sort, um, consciousness of some sort, which shouldn't be true. It's not my own personal belief. I expect that the line is to be drawn uh, way beyond the, the point when you attribute consciousness to stones. Where it's to be drawn, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that uh, for ethical purposes, um, whether something is conscious or not uh, is the determining factor, but maybe that's something that we will get to. Well, perhaps you can, you can move there now and start talking about how these relationships have informed your, your ethical view of the world and, and how they might and should perhaps inform other people's ethical views of the world. Okay. Well, I've, I've said that relationships for me are everything. Uh, they are foundational to our definition of ourselves. Charles Foster is the nexus of relationships in which he exists. And since I've said that consciousness is something that facilitates relationship, um, it would follow that the ethics which I extract from my notion of relationality as essential to identity um, is easier to apply to beings that have consciousness. It's a rather elaborate formulation. Um, it doesn't follow from that, though, that uh, we don't have ethical obligations to things that, things that don't have consciousness. Um, one reason, of course, is that uh, when we do a bad thing to another thing, uh, doing the bad thing hurts us just as much as it hurts the other thing, perhaps more. Um, we may maybe get on to talk about dignity, yes. but um, I talk in the dignity book about dignity being Janus-faced. So if I behave in a way that uh, reduces the dignity of another creature, um, I, I, might, I might be reducing my own dignity a lot more than I'm reducing the dignity of that, of that other creature. Um, so. I do think that consciousness is uh, pretty ubiquitous in the 
animate creatures that we treat in such a callous way. Um, that conviction does increase the concern that I have for the way that we uh, treat them. Um, but even if they didn't have consciousness, um, I would still be concerned about the, the ethics of maltreating them. Right. And there's also this sense of getting into the head of the heads of other life forms, as right. it were. So what's very clear in being a beast, what I found to be some of the most evocative and often depressing aspects of the book was when you, when you would give these little snippets about how different animals have had to adjust their behavior due to man's encroachment on their environment, or given the olfactory sensibilities or hearing abilities or, or, or visual abilities or what have you of various different animals, how noises or uh, other phenomenon which to us is a, is, is a disturbance, is an inconvenience, might actually be very, very disruptive to them. Right. And so, I mean, one doesn't have to necessarily bring in consciousness, no. I guess is what I'm saying, no. to, to, to try to look at things from the perspective of these other animals. And that's one of the things I think you do very, very well uh, in, uh, in being a beast. But I can imagine is an important lesson for other people to really try to right. take to heart. Right. I mean, even if a fox is only sensate and not conscious, um, the things which modern life does to our urban foxes uh, is obscene. Um, so we force our urban foxes to be subjected to noises, which for a fox are like, would be like us um, trying to sleep next to a, a jet engine. <laughs> um, so we have radically altered their sensual world and whether or not consciousness is a part of their uh, ontological package, <laughs> um, that is regrettable. What's interesting to me is that this is something that I think is more accessible to people than they might appreciate. There's this sense of, well, how could we ever know really what, what might be going through, what, what might be impinging itself upon a fox or right. upon a badger or upon an otter or upon right. whatever. That's, that's just impossible to do. And, and what you, I think, achieve in this book is to really throw a rock against that entire edifice and say, no, actually, you, you can have some sense of it. You can, by making the effort, not only are you able to make some headway, but you're also able to better appreciate, of course, yourself and your own limitations right. and your own abilities and all the rest of that. But the, the effort of doing so, of course, you can't ever really get into the, the mind of a, of a badger or, or whatever, or a swift or, or, or a fox or what have you. But it's, it's an important effort to actually be making because it, uh, it, it helps us in our humanity, but it also gives us a, a much easier way of getting in touch with the surrounding world, which I think is actually quite inspirational and I would imagine would lead to a much greater level of sensitivity to our environment. Are you finding that sort of reaction from being a beast in terms of people who have read it and what they're saying to you and saying, gosh, I've never thought that I even could enter into these potential conversations or imaginations as to what other life forms and what other animals are feeling. Are you getting that at all? Or, or is it just this weird Charles Foster guy who goes around and <laughs> lives like this and lives like that? No, I, I'm finding that 
um, people are almost always uh, sympathetic uh, rather than uh, dismissive. I'm finding that um, people almost always recognize that um, they are more or less disastrously dislocated from the natural world, that they are missing something in terms of their ordinary urban lives by, by failing to be connected to the natural world, and um, are glad to know that there are fairly easy ways to reconnect. And you can just drop six feet to the ground in your local park. Um, and smell the ground, which is something that you'd normally never do. Feel it under your palms. Um, when we grew up as human beings on the plains of East Africa, we hoisted almost all our sensory receptors six feet above the ground. And uh, we immediately had big vistas. We immediately saw the connections between things which had uh, previously been invisible to us, and we immediately became uh, beings who could understand in some ways the ways of the wildebeest wandering better than the wildebeest did themselves, but it came at a tremendous cost. Um, our, our vision became wedded, as we were saying earlier, to our cognition, and now we live almost entirely in our heads. We are woefully unsensual creatures, but there's a way back. Um, you can drop again that six feet, drop down the 20 million years as you do it to the, the time when uh, badgers and humans shared a common ancestor. Um, uh, or learn from your children who are doing that all the time. And you will have a literal sensory renaissance by doing that. And that to me also seems to be linked to this, these modern notions of neuroplasticity as right. well. Because uh, as you're writing about how you're depending increasingly on your olfactory sensors and all the rest of that, and then you're, you're doing it as a badger, and then you, you start doing it somewhere else. I can't remember. Maybe you're an otter. Maybe you're... You, but, but you've developed these, these habits that you're able to then utilize and move forwards with. That gives you truly a sense of hope, because I think people used to think, well, we, we are just the way we are, and we're... There's no way back, and we can, of course, perhaps use some tools and so forth. But you're saying just on an individual level, let alone on an evolutionary level, that you're actually able to harness the, the, the flexibility of the brain to actually uh, mold and adapt and, and, and change your behavior later on. Right. Everything we do um, produces physical changes in our brain. We get new neuronal connections. So by using your nose in a way that you didn't use it before, you are rewiring your brain in a way which is going to be good for you. Because your nose and your nasal cortex are meant to be used. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to overdo the neuroplasticity uh, business. Um, I think a much more important part of what I was doing was simply learning to pay attention uh, to things which we normally pay no attention to. And Paying attention is a tremendously difficult thing to learn to do. Um, I sit for about 35 minutes each day, cross-legged, um, with my eyes closed, um, paying attention to my breath or to uh, me counting mentally one to nine and back again. I've been doing it for years, um, and I have learned that you can learn to focus on the numbers one to nine. 
but it's a tremendously difficult thing to do. I think, similarly, the, the practice in paying attention to your olfaction, which is normally ignored, is, is something which it requires work and application to do, but is a tremendously worthwhile effort. When you look around and you see contemporary society perhaps moving in a rather different direction, we're paying attention, I think, to less and less for less and less periods of time. Mm. Um, do you, are you despairing? Do you have a sense that we're getting, notwithstanding the frustration that, uh, that some people have enunciated um, and the resonance with people who have read your book and so forth, do you generally have a sense that as a species we're moving so far so quickly along the road to paying less and less attention to things that there will be a point when perhaps there's no turning back? I, I oscillate between uh, optimism and pessimism. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm d distressed and worried at our goldfish bowl um, attention. Um, but I also know from my own experience that there is a way back, and it's not a hard way back. Have you been able to influence and convert other people around you? Uh, in your nexus of relationships, not to the extent, obviously, of pursuing some of the adventures that you've pursued, but this, this idea that uh, people can become more in touch with the natural world than they have before. They can notice more things. There can be a greater sense of awareness. Or do you have a... That's perhaps an ill-framed question because I'm asking you if you have this messi messianic tendency to try to get people <laughs> to do that. That's not really what I'm asking. Um, I can just imagine that um, there would be greater numbers of people who would say, yes, I want to try doing something. I want to try paying more attention. I want to try being more involved. You can see movements that are sprouting up here, there, everywhere. Are you getting any sense of that? Or is there just everybody's walking around with their phones bumping into stuff and <laughs> not paying attention to anything? Now, I say these things a lot, and some people, quite a lot of people, have said, yeah, um, I see the sense of that. I'll have a go. Okay. Um, I'd like to move to dignity and your use of dignity as not only, I think, a guiding ethical principle, but also something which has a very practical, pragmatic aspect to it. I found this to be particularly illuminating, your, your book on dignity and, and bioethics and law, for a couple of reasons. In the first case, as I said, it seemed to me to be pointing towards a very clear prescription for action as opposed to just saying, oh yes, well, we should pay more attention to dignity. And I think dignity to some extent has had a bit of a bad name. People right. say, oh yes, dignity, yes, yes, dignity is one of these motherhood and apple pie things and we should right. all, yeah, of course we should, we should pay attention to that, but we can't really do anything with it. Right. And you were quite explicit that actually, no, we can. We can use it in a very practical way and we can use it uh, in, in a very, um, significant way as not only an ethical guide on our day-to-day -day life, but actually in the law. So perhaps you can give a little bit more explication of, of, okay. of that. Um, the context of the Dignity book is this. Um, it follows a book called Choosing Life, Choosing Death, subtitled The Tyranny of Autonomy in Medical Law and Ethics. I think that subtitle probably says all that um, I need to say about my, my view of autonomy. So having written that strident, polemical, tub-thumping book, 
which is a very easy book to write because it's easy to knock down, easy to say what something shouldn't be. Right. Um, I thought I should attempt the much more difficult exercise of saying what I thought the answer should be. Now, in medical ethics and law, the four principles of Beecham and Childers have been uh, routinely taught. So autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, which has to do with people having a level playing field. The co basic contention in my Dignity book is that these are all fine and good, but they are second-order principles. Um, they plainly have uh, a deeper derivation. Um, for example, beneficence, uh, which orders doctors, for instance, to do what is good. How do you say what's good? Uh, what criteria do you apply? Um, respect for autonomy. Uh, fine, but lots of questions are begged by that. Uh, should I have respect for all expressions of autonomy? Apparently not. I shouldn't have the respect for the um, expression of autonomy which sends a rapist autonomously out to rape a woman, etc., etc., etc. So all of these principles, when I looked at them, plainly had a parent principle. And one would have thought that um, if you want nuanced answers to questions which go to the root of the human condition, you should go to the parent principle. And so I started looking for candidates. And the more I looked, uh, the more obvious it seemed that something of what the Greeks <laughs> were uh, describing as, as human dignity was uh, the most likely candidate. You've already said that it's had a bad press in the academy. Um, mostly it's got a bad press in our contemporary academy because it's seen as um, incurably theological, as having its roots in the Imago Dei. And since God is out of fashion, uh, dignity has, has tended to uh, fall out of fashion. So the, the challenge in trying to sell an account of dignity as the foundational principle was to articulate an account which was a, a secular one, which didn't depend on the, the notion of the, um, of the image of God. And for that, I essentially had to go to Aristotle. <laughs> Um, a notion of human flourishing. So I describe uh, dignity as objective human flourishing, so making the most of the cards which are being handed to you by, by circumstances. And crucial to this account is um, the relational context in which uh, I say all human beings uh, necessarily are. So you it's hard to be dignified on your own. Um, I, I f find it hard to say that an Athenite hermit up there in his cave is thriving as a human being, and therefore, although I don't like to be pushed to the conclusion, it is, is that a person acting with dignity? Probably not. He's probably not making the most of, of, of those cards. One very telling example you gave in that book um, at the beginning, and it was telling and informative for me because it applied in a, to a case that I would be hard-pressed to imagine some other principle applying upon reflection, was this notion of an affront to dignity caused by inappropriate action to somebody who had died. Right. So you talk about um, 
how can we determine whether or not it um, it would be right to take uh, the ear of a corpse and use it for an ashtray right. or to be kicking around a skull. Right. And the, the, the point that you, you made very tellingly was not only is that an affront to the dignity of the dead individual, and then we had to examine what does that mean? That person is dead. How can they have dignity? And, and so to what extent um, can that be considered to be ongoing or part of being even if they're dead? The, uh, the affront to their obvious close relations and so forth. So there's that whole calculus that has to be invoked. But right. then there's also the calculus, as you alluded to earlier in the discussion, about the damage to dignity that it is doing to those who are abusing that particular individual. Right. And, and I found that to be uniquely uh, innovative and also informative in, in terms of a way of being able to categorize and attribute the unethical nature of actions that doesn't somehow use these other um, criteria that you alluded to earlier, this, this non-maleficence and beneficence and justice and autonomy and all the rest right. of that. It would be very hard to imagine making a judgment about the, in, the moral inappropriateness of that act, or maybe the legal inappropriateness right. of that act, using any of those, uh, those criteria. Right. I mean, l let me give you what I think are some more trenchant examples which make the same point. So, Imagine a woman in permanent vegetative state. Uh, the consultant in charge says to the medical students, come and practice your rectal and vaginal examinations on this woman. Uh, the autonomy of the woman is not affected. Her cortex is wiped out. It's difficult to say that she has any autonomy. You might say that if she had known that that was going to happen, um, she would probably have objected to it. But, but as she is at the moment, her autonomy doesn't have anything to say. Um, what, what about the good? Um, our guts say that there is something bad going on here. How do we describe that badness? Um, you might uh, justify what is being good in a utilitarian way, saying future people will be helped by these medical students honing their skills, but uh, although that's an argument for you um, doing this examination, um, it's not an argument which helps you justify your instinct that there is something seriously bad about this. Yeah. Uh, similar comments apply to you know, non-maleficence and justice doesn't really come into it. Uh, another example, um, a, a girl is seriously brain damaged, she's in the emergency department of a hospital, she's lying completely naked, uncovered on a trolley. Youths in the waiting room are very much enjoying the sight of, of her lying there naked. Is it wrong that she's lying there undraped? Yes. How do you describe the wrongness? Uh, it seems to me that that's impossible to do without reference to something which looks for the modern academy, queasily like dignity. So I, I don't think you can escape um, the notion of human dignity. Uh, ultimately, e even the dignity skeptics have to um, use a, a notion which, which is like dignity. One of the great dignity critics um, would have us uh, put in place of dignity something like respect for persons. But again, it seems to me to beg a huge number of questions. Why should I have respect for persons rather than respect for a brick? Who is the person um, for whom we should have respect? In order to define that person and, and to say, 
what the content of the duties that we owe to that person are, then we again have to come to something which looks like dignity, however we spin it. And one of the things that's inspirational about what it is that you're saying is that you feel this convergence between a practical tool for law, perhaps a philosophical outlook, and also common sense. You talk about it just doesn't feel right. It, we, we all have this sense of that's just not right. Okay, we can't perhaps uh, express why it's not right with any degree of intelligibility or rigor or what have you, but we know deep down, according to, uh, in accordance with these examples you've just given, it's just not right for these things to happen. Maybe we can't justify it according to this or that principle of law, but there's this visceral sense of, no, we really shouldn't be doing that. That's offensive. That's wrong. And I think there's something to be said about a convergence between our gut feelings, which of course aren't always right in every right. instance, and no one wants to say anything to, to the contrary, but the idea that as a principle, there's an accordance with our gut feelings by and large, and a principle by which we can actually move forwards and, and start applying to the, to the rule of law. I right. think that's a, that's a very positive development. Right, so uh, I do think that we should listen carefully to our intuitions. They are vertiginously ancient um, and tell us quite a lot. Um, I'm not in favour of legislating purely according to our intuitions. Obviously, intuitions in various uh, situations give answers which are plainly morally offensive. Um, but dignity at least gives a way of, of talking about our intuitions in a way which uh, allows us to examine their validity uh, against some benchmark. Um, and that, that's what I, part of what I hope to achieve in this book. So how would you respond to the criticism which you went uh, to some extent to, uh, to combat, but nonetheless I'm sure has been leveled at you uh, over time, which is, well, this is all very good, Charles, but can you actually do anything with this? Can you actually apply it? Can you actually use it? Can you actually use it as, a, as an effective principle of law? How mm. would you respond to that? I think that... Simply giving this Aristotelian definition of dignity, which I've just outlined, itself doesn't help. Um, you need to have a fair amount of empirical evidence available as to what constitutes human thriving. And I think increasingly we are getting there. I, I think, for example, it is plain that human beings do not thrive when they're on their own. And therefore things, I keep turning to the subject, things which facilitate relationships um, will be likely to increase human thriving and therefore increase human dignity. Um, so dignity facilitating things will be relationship uh, facilitating things. Uh, there, is a, and there is increasingly a science of, of human happiness. There is a science of human relationship facilitation to, to which the law needs to listen. Law itself is uh, offensive and intrusive uh, uh, unless it can be shown to produce uh, human flourishing. And science can help us to, to, to know what genuinely constitutes human flourishing. But also, um, simply to define dignity um, itself is not enough, um, even by reference to these, these broad criteria. Um, you, you've got to have a framework for, for using it. And, I propose in this book um, 
a sort of quasi-utilitarian calculus. So you, um, you add up when you're considering whether a transaction is ethically and therefore legally justified, uh, the, the total amount of dignity which flows in and out of it um, by, by assessing in a sort of uh, roughly Bayesian way uh, by reference to the, the proximity to the center of, of the transaction, um, the, the amount of human flourishing which is affected by it. Yeah. It's rather a convoluted idea. I do condescend to more detail in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I don't well, I'm, I don't think it's convoluted, and I think my statement has some weight because I'm not a lawyer. So if, if I could understand what you're doing, I think uh, you're not certainly preaching to the choir in that particular respect. Um, I just wanted to highlight that when you were talking about how we have to pay attention to empirical studies and we have to pay attention to what practically constitutes human happiness, be it relationships or, or, or otherwise, um, that's an emphasis of, a, of another theme that you've made, at least throughout that book, uh, which is this uh, convergence between the normative and the, and the empirical, right. that we have to actually, right. um, uh, just enunciating grand principles isn't meant in any way to replace paying attention to rigorous scientific activity that's right. been going on. Right. And, and the second point that you, you make is that very often the principles which are currently in use work perfectly well because they are anchored in this overarching principle of dignity. So these, these four, uh, what is this, Beauchamp, Childress, or whatever, the, the, these guys, um, uh, you're not saying, well, we should throw everything necessarily out. You had alluded at the beginning to, to the point that there are some cases where you can't apply those particular criteria, as well as the fact that sometimes they, in and of themselves, don't seem grounded in anything that you can, right. uh, they're begging questions right. and so forth. Right. So you're providing a, a, a philosophical conceptual framework to it, but you're not saying we have to throw everything out and start from zero. Uh, absolutely not. The four principles will, in most circumstances, if each of them is allowed to have a place in the conversation, produce a, a pretty good um, answer to whatever ethical conundrum you've got. Um, raise the complaint that autonomy often seems to have too strident a voice in that conversation and that its voice uh, needs to be uh, heard alongside the other three. That's, that's something which historically hasn't happened. But um, as a tool for teaching medical students, um, four principles give you a, a very good start. It's, it's a, a nice little thing to remember. But there are some situations where those four principles will not give you a remotely satisfactory answer. And where that is the case, um, you have to go to the, the parent principle. Um, you, you mentioned uh, the convergence of the empirical and the normative. Uh, Maybe worth saying that um, I do think that when you're dealing with the most fundamental questions um, about human beings, it is unsurprising that normative and the, the empirical uh, are quite difficult to distinguish. Uh, and the fact that they're difficult to distinguish shouldn't be seen as a problem. It should be seen as a vindication that you got pretty close to the source. I'm suspicious for all these reasons of um, the is-ought gap, which forms such uh, an important plank of analytical philosophy. You know, the notion that you 
cannot derive what you ought to do from the way that the world is. We should just uh, sit in a room somewhere and enunciate some principles right, independent of what people right, are doing. Right. I, I think if you're doing your philosophy at a sufficiently fundamental level, there is no gap. Right. A couple other points to be made with the, the dignity work. In the preface to the foreword to the book, there was some Lord Justice or another, I can't remember who he was. Uh, Lord Justice Mumby, as he then was. He said all sorts of glowing things about the book, and he, he speculated at the very end whether or not it might be possible for you, having delineated um, a framework by which one could apply dignity to bioethics and medical law and so forth, to think about extending it to other areas of human activity and inquiry. So one of the things that, and law for that matter, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that struck me, and perhaps it's just my own orientation, is we live in an age when there are curious and flagrant omissions of human dignity mm. all around us. So the most obvious case to me is uh, the issue of homelessness. Mm. And I'm certainly no saint, nor do I pretend to be, but we're all inured to the idea that we'll walk around London and there will be somebody who is sleeping on a, on a sewer grate. Yeah. It seems to me that our legal and social policies could benefit from a more rigorous invocation of principles of dignity to be able to deal with the situation. First of all, by recognizing its absurdity that here we are in, in, a, in an affluent country and we have human beings who are uh, sleeping on sewer gratings, but also more practically a way to actually go ahead and deal with that. Is that something that you would first of all agree with and second of all that you would have any ideas as to how to move forwards with if you would agree with? Mm. I certainly agree with the idea. I'm not a very politically savvy person and I think that what you're asking for is, is essentially for this notion of dignity to be used as, as a political uh, rallying cry. Um, I think it's potentially very potent as, as that. Dignity is used in lots of international declarations and conventions. Um, and in the uh, junctions to lots of professionals um, about how they should uh, treat their clients. Um, by and large, the law has not had to say what the word dignity means in these conventions or uh, other instruments. Um, it's increasingly going to have to do so. Um, so these jurisprudential questions about what dignity has to say uh, can't be dodged all that much longer. Once the judges have said, hopefully agreeing with me, uh, what, what dig dignity is going to mean, um, then perhaps dignity will have more of a, an edge with which to uh, cut through some of the awful situations that you talked about. Mm. My second point is that clearly in this book, you're looking at dignity between human beings. You're talking as an anchoring principle, human striving. You're talking about um, relationships between humans. But as a philosophical principle, in keeping with 
my conviction of you being a deep Aristotelian and some of the things you've said earlier and relationships writ large, this is clearly, it seems to me, a principle that can and should, in your mind, be extended even beyond that, that we should look at dignity in terms of sensitivity to striving, sensitivity to being, going even beyond humans and human societies and human relationships, but in fact being writ large. Is that a fair assessment? Spot on. Um, first of all, it is, on my account of dignity, plainly the case that my dignity is diminished if I uh, treat a, an animal in a bad way. Uh, it, it may very well be that it is possible to talk about the dignity of that animal um, in the same terms in which I talk about the dignity of humans, so in terms of the thriving interests uh, of that animal. Um, that animal plainly has some thriving interest, whether or not it has consciousness. Um, it plainly has a, an interest in not suffering pain. And, and to that extent, I would say that um, to cause pain to the animal is to uh, affect its dignity in a way which should be prescribed. So, yes, although there is an awful lot of work to do in, in uh, delineating just how this dignity theory might apply to non-humans, in principle there is, uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't. The, the difficulty will be um, in being able to say empirically sufficient about what constitutes non-human thriving for this account to do all the work in a non-human sphere that it can in a human sphere. I, mean, I know pretty well what it means for a human being to thrive. There's a vast literature on it, um, I know from my own experience. Um, I, I can tell you a few things, I think, as can anyone about what it means for a dolphin to thrive. But I can't, at the moment, science being what it is, um, give you the same degree of explicit detail about what it constitutes, what, what, what dolphin thriving constitutes. Unless and until I can do that, I can't apply all of my convictions about what dignity means to the dolphin situation. Right. And I never meant to imply, by the way, that I thought you should be the only one doing this. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's far too large a task, but I, I think um, setting the, the groundwork as it is, setting the philosophical framework and setting the motivations is very important. And I imagine that there would be a fairly large number of people who come at, at this uh, issue from a variety of different perspectives who would be very sympathetic to it, be, be they neurophysiologists, be they animal uh, scientists, be they environmentalists, be they what have you, who, uh, who think, oh yes, this is, this is an idea which, uh, which we have believed all along and haven't perhaps been explicit about, or this is perhaps a new way of looking at things, or this is a way that we can uh, form an alliance with our colleagues in this field or that field or what have you and start giving ourselves some sort of cohesion and framework. Yeah, uh, the, the people from whom I had most resistance are the lawyers, and I think the the reason for that resistance is the fact that the word dignity appears as an entirely undefined placeholder in so many places, and lawyers look at that and say, oh, because it's undefined, it's undefinable, which is, of course, a non sequitur. Right. A concrete example uh, in, in your book about the way that one can 
um, perhaps extend this to the to the animal world is when you talk about the the obvious inappropriateness of a, of a group of boys uh, kicking uh, a skull as a soccer ball um, and then you say well what if we imagine that that skull would actually be an animal skull mm. um, it's still inappropriate it, it, it still is offensive to to the dignity of the animal to the dignity of the boys to the dignity in, in all sorts of ways so you, you you provide very concrete examples of ways in which you can imagine extending this not obviously doing so rigorously in all cases that's far too large a job but at least there's a there's a conduit to, right. to imagining how you right. can go forward right. so here's the obvious question um, you've convinced me um, that may not be such a large accomplishment. Uh, I may be very easily convinced, and I'm certainly not a not an expert in this particular area, nor do I pretend to be. But what sort of effect has this book had? Has this enumeration of this principle and potential way forwards had? Uh, you mentioned some skepticism by uh, by lawyers with respect to definitions of dignity and so forth. What, what sort of reception have, has this book had, and, and how sanguine or or not are you uh, about its eventual implementation in the legal community? Well, it's had a broadly sympathetic reception. Um, most people agree with you and with me that um, it's difficult to analyse, for example, the vaginal examination on the woman in PVS situation in a way which doesn't have recourse to something like dignity. And so people are troubled by examples like that. They're, um, they're looking around for, for, for something to fill the gap. Yeah. Um, there's, there is this deep queasiness about, about the, the word dignity, which as I've explained, I think has a suspicion of theology at its root. Um, but my impression is that dignity is, is no longer the, the dirty word that um, it, it has been. It's not just because of me. L lots of people sure. are, uh, are, are doing this work. Um, and I think there is a, a grudging acceptance, even amongst lawyers, that however vague the notion of dignity intrinsically is, because it's there in the instruments, whether they like it or not, they're going to have to make something of it. And that has propelled uh, an interest in dignity, which I think would have been unforeseeable even 10 years ago. Let's talk a little bit about the sociology of the legal community. And let's just speak abstractly, because I'm not talking about you. I understand it's not your job. Uh, you write books, you think about things, you put ideas out there, and, and you're, you're not going to be uh, politicking or, or, or being... Uh, dogmatic advocate for, for one perspective over another. And yet the hope clearly is that people's hearts and minds will eventually move in a different direction. Right. How does that actually happen? Does it happen because you have influential justices who start uh, invoking these principles? Does it happen because of media attention? Does it happen because of papers that are written in the legal community? How, how do people start adopting one practice broadly speaking, over another? All of, all of the controversies that you just mentioned are important. Um, the two most important things are what the judges say and what the statute law says. So what is declared in a statute about the basic values of a society is 
it's hugely important. And for that reason, all the things that go into the making of that statute, all the, all the lobbying, all the uh, journalistic pressure, um, are tremendously important. But also because uh, the reading of judgments is so important a part of uh, a legal education, um, what the judges say is massively important too. I had another comment, um, wondering whether or not I should bring it up, but I think I will. So in your book on, on human dignity, you're railing against Kant quite a bit. And one gets the sense of, uh, here's this guy who's really had it with this old Prussian guy talking about, I think I know what autonomy is and human reason and formally in a room somewhere talking about how we understand mm. um, aspects of, uh, uh, of human thinking and human reasoning. And I've got this big formal system as to how human beings should behave. Um, and I've got it all worked out. So what struck me as curious, so I'm not sure this is even going to be a question. It's going to, it's going to take a while, but it's not even, it might not even end in a question, so I'm warning you. <laughs> is the other day, uh, I had a conversation with Honora O'Neill, famous Kantian scholar. And what she was saying, or at least what I understood, some broad principles that she was evoking, was not very dissimilar to what I get from you. So let me be more specific. She talks at great length about um, the categorical imperative as a principle of universalism. Mm -hmm. And moreover, she talks about how for her, Kantian views of autonomy are views of autonomy of reason rather than the reasoner. Right. And by Kantian views of reason, what she means is Kant's notion of practical reason which necessarily involves the supremacy of the categorical imperative, which in turn necessarily involves this idea of universalism and the notion that reason discourse um, can actually proceed by invoking principles that all people could in principle follow and agree with. And so for her, a reason why the supremacy of the categorical imperative is what it is, according to Kant, what Kant means by autonomy, necessarily involves human relationships, history, culture, people getting together to have reason dialogue and so forth. So this doesn't strike me, and I'm not a philosopher, nor do I pretend to be, so maybe I'm missing something very essential, yeah. but this doesn't strike me as very different than your emphasis on relationships, then your then uh, I mean maybe universalism uh, must be pushed further back in terms of beyond human universalism right. and, and the world around right. us. But in terms of its principled approach, here I am saying you know two days ago I talked to Honora O'Neill and now I'm reading this book about this guy who's saying Kant's a terrible person and I'm gonna you know I'm gleefully <laughs> gonna take a hatchet to, to Kant and Kantians and all the rest of that and I'm thinking, is it really that different? It doesn't really seem all that different. Do you understand my confusion? I see, I finally came to a question. <laughs> yeah, my, my problem with Kant is that, um, first of all, it is silly to think that human beings proceed by reason, or what he understands as reason. Um, plainly what we value in other human beings is not their ability to reason. Um, plainly lots of the things which are 
the ethical products of reason are unethical. Um, lots of the people to whom we have to um, apply our own um, ethical superstructures are people who it is plainly uh, impossible to attribute reasoning to. So Kant has absolutely nothing to say uh, um, to the, the patient in persistent vegetative state other than they are not a human being. Um, and that is very deeply problematic for me. And, and it, it may be that at the root of this um, distaste for Kant is my acknowledgement that he doesn't deal sufficiently with the relationality, which is um, at the root of all my convictions about what human beings are, and therefore my convictions about the way that human beings act. Um, I haven't, haven't looked sufficiently hard at whether that is the case to be able to to plead guilty to, to that conviction, but I suspect that... I'm certainly not recommending that you do so, that you take time out of your schedule to, to read the, the groundwork, or <laughs> like a reread or reread I'm just, and perhaps it's her particular interpretation of Kant and what Kant said. I just, it just struck me as somewhat incongruous, uh, but you've, you've made it very clear in terms of your, uh, your objection to specific notions of autonomy in terms of rationality and so forth. Um, is there anything, this has been a very enjoyable conversation for me and we've ranged all over the place, is there anything that we have alighted or perhaps not emphasized sufficiently or you'd like to add or anything? anything? No, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Well, so have thank I. you. Well, thank you very much, Charles. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. You're a very impressive fellow. Keep doing your, what you're doing. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, if you talk to anybody who knows me, the kindness won't be the word that comes to mind. <laughs> That's not an attribute that I'm normally associated with. Um, but no, I, I find it very, very impressive what you're doing. Just keep going, man. Just keep writing these books. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with James Robert Brown, Tricia Churchland, Alfred Mealy, and Scott Soames. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.